After nine years at Microsoft, Scott Birkin left to become an author. One of his books on project management was read by Matt Mullenweg, the creator of the WordPress blogging tool that runs a large percentage of the internet, including Software Engineering Daily. Scott became friends with the WordPress founder, who is also the CEO of Automatic, the company that sells WordPress hosting and support. Matt and Scott were keeping in touch, and around that time, Automatic was run as a company that was completely flat. Everybody was reporting to Matt Mullenweg. You know, he was the creator of WordPress, he was running the company, and it was a decentralized, distributed company where everyone worked remote. But the reporting of everybody to a single person was unsustainable. Eventually, Matt Mullenweg, the CEO, decided that Automatic should try management, and he convinced Scott to take a break from his writing career to return to the world of software engineering as Automatic's first manager. Scott accepted the role under the condition that he could write a book about the experience, and the result of that agreement is The Year Without Pants, WordPress.com and the Future of Work, which is a brilliant depiction of what it is like to work at a completely remote software company. Scott Birkin joins the show today to talk about his book and his career journey from Microsoft to being an author to working at WordPress with Matt Mullenweg and the WordPress team completely remotely, and now he's back to writing. He also shares his thoughts on the workplace dynamics that we spend our days in at software companies. This is a great episode. I really enjoyed talking to Scott, and I really want to urge you to check out his book, The Year Without Pants. If you run out of podcasts to listen to, The Year Without Pants is, I I can't recommend it enough as the next thing that you should check out. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think and send me any recommendations for topics uh, that you think I should do or any other feedback. And if you like this episode or any other episode, share it with your friends or share it on Twitter. Hope you enjoy this episode. Scott Birkin is the author of The Year Without Pants, a book about remote work and WordPress. Scott, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I really enjoyed your book. So most of your book is about your experience working at WordPress as an engineering manager, but I want to start by talking about a little further back in your history at Microsoft, where you worked for nine years before leaving to become an author. And you were working at Microsoft when it was probably the most desirable company to work for in the world. But I get the sense from your book that even when you were at Microsoft, you were starting to identify corporate work practices that were maybe counterproductive. Perhaps they were relics of a more industrial form of work, and they no longer fit into the world of the modern knowledge worker. Were you starting to question this classical way of working when you were still at Microsoft? Absolutely. But I think that there's there's an important assumption a flawed assumption that we make whenever we talk about companies and cultures, we, we, it's it's convenient just to lump an entire organization of you know Microsoft's now probably 120,000 people. When I left, it was probably 50,000 people, and it's very convenient just to assume that it's one uni- uniform kind of experience. And I think what I learned at Microsoft about halfway through my my nine years there was how different even within one company 
each division and each team with each, within each division, that their cultures can be really very, very different. And my initial experience at Microsoft when I worked on Internet Explorer and I was just a kid out of college, I actually had a great experience. I worked with really smart people. My managers were pretty good, at least about teaching me things and looking after my welfare. And then about halfway through my career, I started moving around to other parts of the company. And that's where I, I was shocked to understand how lucky I had been in the quality of the managers I had up until that point. And so that was really the learning, the learning experience for me because I had thought I was a really good team lead, but then when, when, I realized, when I ended up in a different part of the company and the culture was very different, I was suddenly not very effective anymore and I didn't understand why. And I was very angry about it at the time. I was 26 years old and I, I, I thought that these groups were really stupid and I, I didn't really handle it very well, but I learned a great deal about how different these places can be. So that was probably where I woke up and realized that my earlier experiences had, were unusually good. Hmm. What about the things that were m- more agnostic of specific teams and specific managers? Like just being at an office... Uh, the things that go on in an office, maybe the political structurings. Is, how much of the classical way of working that was present in ni- late 90s, early 2000s Microsoft, how much of that is rooted in fundamental reasons about you know things that are practical about working, or how much of it is just handed down from early practices of the Industrial Revolution that have just you know naturally manifested into what we have today? It's hard. I have my guesses. I can't really know for sure because I bet the people who followed those attitudes and those beliefs, they have their own justifications for why they did it or not. I think that um, it's just human nature. I think that we like to make, we like to criticize groups of people who seem more conservative about or less thoughtful about why they do what they do than we are. But we all do it. I mean, just just even. We get up in the morning and eat breakfast, and we eat cereal for breakfast. And then if you read up on the history of why Americans eat cereal for breakfast, it's an entirely made-up thing. <laughs> the, the Kellogg Company had a whole – I mean, this is a short version of it, but they had a surplus of a certain kind of you know, corn and these other things. They were trying to find a way to productize it, and they invented this – what's now become an American tradition that we uphold and feel very strongly about. That's that We believe that's the way it's always been, and we take pride in it. So I think there are these wider universal things about human nature and tradition, and the workplace is just – even workplaces that are that are progressive suffer from some of the same problems. If the reasons why they believe th- the habits they have are good are often not very logical when you start digging into them. But to, to more directly answer your question, uh, for the first half of my career at Microsoft, it, it still felt like it was an unusually progressive place. It may not have been that progressive relative to the rest of the software industry, but I remember when my parents came to visit me as a manager at Microsoft, and they were stunned that I greeted them at the office, the door to the building, in a t-shirt and shorts. They just—they could not believe. They thought that I was going to get fired soon. They, they could, until they saw everybody else, and they realized, oh, the culture here is different. There's a li- more liberal attitude towards how people dress. That was just shocking to them, and to me, or to you, or to anyone in the software industry, at least on the West Coast of the United States in 1996. This was normal. This was like an average situation. It wasn't a particularly um, liberal notion that the dress codes were sort of thrown out, thrown out the window. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So 
you were at Microsoft for about nine years. You left to become an author, and then later you got into you started working at WordPress. We'll get into that, but you know, one thing that's interesting to me is, you know, I I left Amazon and shifted into full time podcasting about a year ago, and so I'm somewhat you know not totally directly the same as what you did but it was analogous um and a lot of the feelings that you wrote about in the year without pants resonated with me regarding leaving a tech giant to do an editorial creative solo pursuit what was it like shifting from being in engineering at microsoft to being an author the well at first the idea of it was was terrifying that I, I couldn't, it was very hard to rationalize the way I felt, the changing way I was feeling about work with any plan for what to do about it. And it took me more than a year to sort out really what I was feeling and to come up with a plan that could possibly work. But initially it was, it was an existential dilemma. I felt that I had lined up my college career and then the first you know, five or six years of working, my plan was I was going to do the same thing forever. And little by little, realizing that I wasn't really that happy doing that anymore was a terrifying thing. And I was not prepared for it. And I didn't know anyone else who had done a career transition like that. So at first it was terrible. I wasn't sure that I wanted to write, but like you said, that's a good word, something more editorial or something more creative. I was pretty sure that that's really what I wanted to try to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And, um, it was very difficult I was I was a I was not a happy person. It negatively affected my marriage. Um, the prospect of me quitting and changing careers—it was a tough year. But I concluded at the end of all that that I needed to try to do something different. That despite my pretensions of having an existential crisis, I was not going to die. Uh, <laughs> I had a good career in the software industry, and if I quit to do something else, I could probably come back. So I finally came around to realizing that it was a very rational thing to do to try to do something different. And once I came to terms with that and I had support from some, from some friends and from my wife, uh, the logistics of it became just another project to manage. And uh, so the reality of it was a lot less scary than getting around the fear and then just deciding to do it. Yeah. No, I think what you say about coming to terms with the idea that you can just always just come back to the software industry. I mean, that may not always be true, but... I think the notions of risk around leaving a company, a large company, after you have some experience, uh, engineers particularly often overestimate how much risk there is because your downside is so capped, you can always just come back, at yeah. least for the foreseeable future. <laughs> um, so, the, but the earlier books that you wrote about before you started writing, you, before you went to WordPress and you wrote about your experiences in remote work at Automatic which we'll get into. Your earlier books were about project management and innovation and idea generation and execution, things like that. How much of that writing was based on your experiences in Microsoft? A great, a great deal of it. Uh, the, the, so the first book that I wrote was called Making Things Happen, and it's basically a manual for a, a handbook is probably a better word than a manual. Manual sounds terribly boring. Uh, it was a handbook for how to be a team leader. And I learned that was my primary job I had throughout my career at Microsoft. And I thought I was very good at it. And I'd studied the history 
of management leadership. So that one, absolutely. And that book is still a popular book at Microsoft for uh, people who are program managers and have to manage technical, manage and lead technical projects, which is what most of the software industry is about. And then the second book, The Myths of Innovation, that book was born out of a side interest that I had. Most of the projects I worked on at, at Microsoft were intended to be progressive products. I was expected to invent new features and to, so I worked on Internet Explorer for years and that was a very aggressive product for the company. That was the birth of the web. And so a lot of my experience had been in trying to build new things and convert these new abstract ideas into actual products that people could use. And I, to do that job well, I felt like I needed to study history. So I started reading about Edison and I read about Ford, and I read about Da Vinci, and I just became a historian in wanting to understand the true stories. So, so much of the modern tellings of the, these histories are just terrible. And I, I would hear people, including very smart senior people, not just at Microsoft, but at other tech companies I, I would work with, have these terribly erroneous mytho mythological beliefs about how new ideas get developed. And I knew that some of what they said was wrong. So I'd go and I'd read up on all these legends. And, and then by the time I quit and became an author, I knew I wanted to write a book about all these, these myths, these, these false mm -hmm. legends. And that's what, what books should do is to help people convert what they think is true or it feels like it should be true, but isn't into, into the honest facts. If you want to actually, following the footsteps of these great creative people, it should be based on the reality of it rather than the legends of it. So, so in, in a way, both of those first two books were totally related to my experience uh, at Microsoft. Totally. Um, and so the writing that you did after leaving Microsoft, one of these books made its way into the hands of Matt Mullenweg, who runs Automatic. He's the creator of WordPress. And he suggested that you join his company to manage a team. This was when the company was moving from a totally flat org structure with everyone reporting to Matt to a structure with teams, at least, well, at least one team. I think, or I think it was all organized all into teams. And you would be the first manager, the first middle manager. Why did Matt trust you to be the first manager within WordPress? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I don't know that I can, um, Matt's a very smart guy, but I don't know that I can tell you exactly what he was thinking. I think part of it was that um, he so he read the book and he 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 liked it. He thought that it reflected some of his own experience managing people working at WordPress. But I also think he was intrigued by the fact that it would be a bit of a curveball. That he's very fond. I think it's one of my favorite things about him. He's very fond of experimentation. He believes that you have to do things that you're not sure what the result is going to be if you want to learn. And he had he had taken my advice. He, he had me come in um, a year or two before he offered me this job to just be a consultant and observe one of their grand meetups where they get the entire company together to work on projects. So he had me come in, and that was sort of his version of an interview, just to see how I would do in talking to his staff and what advice I'd give him based on my observations. So he had that basis of insight of observing me give him my, my perspective on his company. I think that helped too. But in the end, I think he knew it was an experiment. He knew, like we're saying, I was saying before about how I was afraid 
when I quit about what would happen, like what would the worst thing happen, I think he knew that the worst thing that would happen if he hired me to be a leader on his team, uh, one of the, uh, to, to be a manager of his company, what's the worst thing that would happen? He'd just fire me. Like, didn't, I, don't, I don't think he saw that there was that much risk in taking this, this chance. And, um, but I think he was, based on what he knew about me from what I, the books I'd written and this experience coming in doing some consulting for him, that was enough for him to think it was worth a shot. Mm. And so when you were joining the company as a manager, were there lessons from the Microsoft days that you were thinking back on, like perhaps bad experiences with other managers or things that you did wrong where you're like, oh, I want to do things completely different here. I never want to do that thing that manager X did. I mean, because I guess you were coming in in an interesting time because you had left Microsoft and then you had a couple of years of reflection and then you were returning as a manager, perhaps with some of the lessons that you had learned calcified. Um, yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what one hopes to avoid calcification in life, but uh, as we get older, we're, we're, well, I, I keep I this positive same, calcification. Yeah, positive calcification. Yeah, this this uh, uh, as we as I was joking before, you know, that's what traditions come from. It's just this. It feels good to reinforce your your own beliefs, even if they may have led you astray. I think that you're, you're right. It was actually a lot of years. It was, um, so I left Microsoft in 2003 and I started at Automatic, which is the, the, the parent company for WordPress.com. I started Automatic in 2010. So it was seven years uh, where I hadn't managed anybody. I've just been a self-employed writer, speaker, uh, speaker dude. Um, I was afraid of a few things. So I, I, I think one thing I learned, I learned at Microsoft from the better managers that I had was about patience, and that especially when you're in a new group or in a new team, there's a lot of ego that's natural when you take on a new job of whatever attitude you have or philosophy you have that you want to. It seems like you you should immediately imprint that on the people that you work that work for you or that you're going to work with, that you have to somehow lead the charge and be dramatic leader, leader guy. Um, and I realized, I learned that that's a terribly tragic mistake. It's a very ego, egotistical way to go about what is really a more collaborative job. To be a leader means you have to earn people's trust. And you don't really earn people's trust, especially if they're smart and free thinking on their own, by simply coming in and starting to, starting to tell them what to do. So I knew that my plan for the first month or so was really just to be an observer, to be as involved as I needed to be so that people could get their work done. But since they had all been functioning without a manager for a long time, uh, if I didn't see anything acute that was a, you know, something that was on fire that no one was dealing with, I was just going to be patient until I learned enough about the culture and about the people who I was managing that I could start seeing how to add value. So patience was really the, the, um, the approach that I took. Right. Patience, of course, underrated in all areas of life, like, uh, always underestimated. Um, Who wants to wait? Know, Who wants to wait? You know? Yeah, seriously. No, <laughs> I mean, true, more true today than, than ever, perhaps. Um, the, the first trialing experience that you went through at WordPress, from my recollection, was when you were doing support and this was this moment early on in the book where you're doing these support tickets because that's like the first thing everybody has to do when they join WordPress is do some support uh, for customers who have problems with their blog. 
and there's this moment where you're talking to Matt, the CEO, over IRC, and he tells you that you're underperforming in your support tickets. And at that moment, like when I when I heard that, I was just like, "Wow, that that's probably a moment where you're thinking like, oh, I should have just stayed an independent author, so I have to take this crappy order." Because I I just remember these feelings at, at you know whenever I was at a company in some subservient role and I was just like getting performance reviews and it's like your performance is terrible. And I was just like, why am I even here? This is so embarrassing. It's so, I just hate being subservient. I've totally don't want to be coached at all. I mean, were, were you feeling that way or were you like, okay, this is fine. This is an opportunity to improve. Um, you know, how, how are you feeling at that moment? Did you, did you feel like, Oh, I should have just stayed an author. I felt like, I felt all of those things. It took a, I felt all those things at the same time. I mean, part of what you deal with in a new job and a new boss is you're trying to calibrate what things mean what. You don't really know how serious to take things yet. Or, and, it's, and I think that is something that's a little bit harder to deal with remotely about you don't get as much secondary feedback about what things might really mean. So I had all of those feelings. Now, on top of those feelings, I had... Uh, or I don't know, on the side of those feelings, I had this general perception that this notion, this this tradition that they have at Automatic of every employee having to do customer support, I think is fantastic. And I remember at the time, even when I was struggling to keep up with the tickets, I still felt it was fantastic. I felt like if ever I started a software company or a company of any kind, I would have the same policy. I thought there were so many good things that were forced to happen because every employee, no matter how senior you are, whether you are a lawyer or a developer or a writer or a marketer, does not matter. Everyone should have a basic understanding of what the customer experience is like and be at the line level of dealing with customers and responding to them. That experience I thought was fantastic. So I had a whole bunch of things going on at the same time. When Matt sent me that message, I knew him well enough that I thought he wasn't, this wasn't like job performance threatening. He was like, he wasn't like, you know, I don't know, you're going to make it a week four. I, I, I had the sense, <laughs> I had the sense that he was, he was uh, making fun of me mostly. He didn't want to let me know that I'm behind, but it wasn't super important. He, he felt that I should just know that. So if I, if I wanted to do perform at a higher level, there was work I had to do. So I didn't take it too seriously in terms mm. of uh, – I felt like, okay, I need to talk to more people who've been doing this longer than I have so I can find out how to be, do it more efficiently, which is probably yeah. his message. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the thing about support tickets being a, a good way to onboard the company, that's a, that's a pretty good point. I hadn't thought about that, but I think actually Facebook does that. Um, and actually, if you're onboarding with an open source project, I think that's a thing that they do nowadays is like the first – they have like a list of tasks. I mean, this is not exactly the same as support tickets, but if you join an open source project today, there's like a list of tasks that are pretty easy things to be done. Like, I don't know, very simple product integration or like open source integrations or something like that, where they just kind of get you onboarded with, here's how things go here. And here's some something that's fairly simple to do that makes you engage with the product. It's not necessarily easy, but it's not necessarily hard it gets you onboarded, and it, and it gets the 
oversight of the community to have some transparency into how you work on exactly. something exactly that's fairly right. straightforward. There's so many yeah. good aspects to that that introductory support thing. Um, yeah, I think you're right, and that was part of uh, the experience I had. That I was they they gave everyone so they gave everyone anyone who joins the company gets a day and a half of actual training and coaching just in using the support tools, you know, opening tickets, uh, knowledge based stuff, just to get the basics down. They coach you through your first couple of tickets, but then they are they were very clear about the fact that you're you're you're, you're going to be catching up on knowledge forever. Because it's such a big product, it's a, you know, it's a development-based product. But they said that, that what you have to learn very quickly is how to use the rest of the company to help you. And they, they showed me that for I can go to the, the, the main chat room, an IRC where everybody is, uh, or a lot of the people, certainly a lot of the, the staff are usually hanging out, and to go in there and to say, I'm working, on, I'm working on a ticket, I need to know how to do X. And at first I was very shy about doing that because it revealed how little I knew. But as soon as I did that, and the response, the culture they had built in was, anytime someone comes into a chat room with a question like that, everyone knows this is high priority because there's actually a customer waiting for this answer. So I went in there, and I would get help from people, and that was how I got to make my first friends at the company, was through this work experience of trying to solve a problem for a customer. And then now, once, and then once I finished going through my own customer support cycle, the three weeks I had to do it, when I'm in the big chat room as a team manager person and somebody else comes in the chat room with the same thing I dealt with a year ago, I'm in, I'm in, I know instinctively I want to try to help them because I remember being that person. And then on it goes and you've built – now it's attribute of a culture of people helping each other and learning by socialization. Uh, and that's a, re it's a rewarding thing rather than a, um, something that's looked down upon. It has a lot to explain about the positive elements of – automatic culture in general just that little by forcing everyone to do it creating this little culture around it i think has powerful effects so getting into some discussion of management uh, to me one of the one of the biggest challenges of a manager and this is true at all companies seems like the allocation of crappy unpleasant work because somebody has to do this type of work there were a couple moments in the book where you were managing projects where there was some work to do that sucked mm -hmm. it wasn't going to be fun and at an older company like microsoft or automatic there is always these crappy legacy integrations <laughs> these old code libraries that nobody wants to touch you know something being managed with an FTP server or just something <laughs> terrible. And yet those things, they always have to be refactored eventually, or they have to be fixed or worked on or something improved somehow. So as a manager, you have to order a coworker who you may consider a friend to go and fix that crappy code. And I remember being pitched on this type of project at several different companies I worked for. And the manager would always tell me, Oh, this is exciting! This is such an important project. Mm. You know, you're going to make a huge difference. You're going to, you know, we're going to be so happy to have this. And I was, and then, you know, I, I would just be like, okay, cool, I'm inspired. And then I would go and do, start doing the work. I would just be like, this is just terrible. <laughs> this is not inspiring at all. And now I don't even trust my manager because now I feel right. hoodwinked. Yep. So when you were managing people, how did you talk about crappy work with them? And this is a, a particularly. Uh, in the realm of 
remote work where you have to be totally frank over because you're talking over IRC. There's no voice inflections. It's probably slightly different. And I'm very curious about the allocation of crappy work. Well, I think that I agree with you. This is a fundamental problem of management. Management's a lot easier when all the you know it's part of the the thrill of startup culture is that everything is everything is new, so no one's inheriting anything. And you know, legacy stuff that everyone knows is terrible, and you, you can dodge all those things. But a six months, a year, five, three years, you're going to have some pile of these things that no one wants to do. I'd, oh, I've always tried to think of it, especially my job as a manager, whatever my job title is, lead. There's so many different labels for it. But I think if I'm a manager. That means I have a team, and if I have a team, that means we share stuff, and we share the good stuff, and we share the bad stuff. And assuming everyone on the team is Reliable and that they're they're good engineers, then we all have we're all on the same generally we're on the same playing field and um, we share the bad stuff. So everyone's going to do their share at some point or another. My job is to balance that so it's timed right for people depending on what what they're up to and what they're doing. But I'm not gonna I would never go to someone and and, and deceive them in the way that it sounds like you were deceived because you can't. It's a very short-sighted way to talk to people about, about projects <laughs> because it only works once. Like they're never going to trust you again. So uh, the story I think that you're talking about in um, uh, in the year without pants, we had this legacy uh, comment management system that yes. was an, it was an acquisition, and that's another thing you inherit as a small company. An acquisition, you think, oh, it's going to be great, and then you look at the code after, and you're like, oh my god, like right. it's just, this doesn't. It may have made sense to the person who did it, but this doesn't fit with anything extensible at all. Anyway, um, and so one of my one of the good developers I had, a guy named Bo, uh, he just inherited it. It was just a, he just got it when the acquisition happened. He worked on it for a while, and he wasn't interested in working on it anymore. And so he and I talked about it, and he we were very upfront about it, and. I tried to give him to balance it out by giving him a, a good amount of more exciting things, like his first choice and other things he wanted to work on. And we we came up with methods to sequester how much um, support he had to give that product. It was only a day or two a week, and to put it in a box. That Tuesday was um, you know work on the less fun project day, and then in his own psychology, it wasn't an ongoing thing anymore. I had put it in a, a box for him. You didn't have to think about it all the time. So there are always little things you can do. But I think fundamentally as the manager, my job is to is to make the playing field level. And that includes as the manager, if I as the boss am willing to take on some of these unpleasant projects myself, then I am now establishing by my own choices that it's something all of us have to do. If the manager always takes on the fun stuff and always delegates the crappy stuff, I think that sets the wrong tone because eventually those individual contributors are going to be managers too. And how do you want them, if you're thinking about a company, how do you want them to handle it? You'd want them to, to do the right thing and set the right tone. So, mm. One thing that is, uh, I mean, you touched on this some in The Year Without Pants, but uh, you don't go into a ton of detail. What? How did... WordPress compare to Microsoft in terms because you know they they were so different on so many different levels. Like WordPress was uh, flat until you were there. Uh, it, it was um, I guess post internet company. Microsoft was hierarchical from mm. the early days, as I understand, and uh, it was not remote. Um, actually, I guess you know, upon recollection, you do you do go into this in in some in some detail, but 
I mean, what are, what are the most salient, you know, after years of reflection, what, do, what are the most salient differences between how product development worked at WordPress, how the culture worked versus that of Microsoft? What are the pros and cons of each? I think that, um, well, <sighs> pros and cons, I have to think about it a little bit more, but the differences are, are, are very clear in my head that WordPress and Automatic, just by its history, is is founded on autonomy. That an open source project is volunteer based. People join it because they are choosing to. They're doing it for free. They're not being paid. So the culture you build is now very much about autonomy. That people contribute because they want to, and the way they contribute, they're going to choose. There's no assignments. That's just the legacy of any open source project. And that's built in now to Automatic, the company. When they created WordPress.com and they created this company, it was largely started with people who were volunteers in the open source community. So the culture is just very highly autonomous. The default behavior is you figure it out for yourself. You're smart. You're talented. That's why you're here. You figure it out. That's the default. Like by the, My introduction, part of what the book tries to explore is how to balance that autonomy with doing work that's large enough that really needs a team to do. How do you take these, this autonomous culture and make it more team-oriented? But, but in terms of the context, so that's the default context. Every designer that gets hired, every writer, that huge, huge amount of value placed on people who are self-motivated and autonomous. Microsoft, generally, on average, certainly now, is probably less so when I was there and less so on the teams that I worked on, but on average now, it's the opposite. These are huge groups with like you know many layers of hierarchy. There's systems in place. There's a lot of process, and that word is not always a bad word. Often I use that word as a bad word, but that, but there's a lot of structure and a lot of thinking and a lot of diplomacy. And um, you're going to be a unit in in a, a structure. And if that unit is managed well, you can do some really amazing things. You can line up resources together and build a great you know, aircraft carrier-sized thing that you could never do if everyone was completely autonomous. Yeah, but, it, oh, God. It, am, am I, am I um, recollecting this wrong? Or was there, there was this moment in the Year Without Pants where I think you were kind of discussing with Matt, or you were writing him some emails where you were saying, the culture at WordPress is awesome, but we have trouble making big bets. Yes. We have trouble like organizing the company. So that's basically what you're saying right yes. now, right? Yeah. And I still think, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not an insider at the company anymore. I have a lot sure. of friends. I, I know Matt. Uh, so I don't know if, if uh, what what exactly, I can't really speak in, inside. But I, I, when I left, I felt like that was the big problem, that to make any sort of sweet, like the, 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 in, in, Microsoft, in Microsoft legend, Microsoft lore, there was this memo that Bill Gates wrote in 1995, which was up until 1995, the company had ignored the internet. And a few middle managers at Microsoft who were younger felt like this was a terrible mistake and that Windows should include an IP stack just to support TCP IP at all. They were they had all this pressure because Windows is the future, and no one really believed it. They felt that desktops and Office was the future. And then Bill Gates was eventually convinced by these younger uh, managers that the internet was everything. And he wrote this memo in 1995 called the, the Sea Change Memo, the Title Change Memo. You can find it online. It's actually a real thing that exists. But in the people who love to talk about the history of Microsoft, this was a transformative day where the CEO of a company basically said, we're going to turn the ship around, the whole ship. And you, that, that's something that's very authoritarian. It's a dictatorial decision. It turned out in this case to be very right, that the company really needed to do that. And, and it did, at least it, 
certainly dumped a ton of resources into the internet. Whether it, it was successful in the things it made is a whole other question. But that's the kind of thing that be it's it's really hard for for um, a company like Automatic or any open source company that's far more autonomous to ever do something like that because the culture is so centralized, not centralized, so um, deeply a deep believer in autonomy and um, and people voting and people expressing opinions. So that's that's a clear distinction for me. I, 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 there are problems I see with the usability and ease of use of WordPress. It's always been mm-hmm. a product that has some... It is, once you get over certain curves, simple to use as a blogger or a writer, but the initial experience is really designed for a developer. Uh, to fix that would require a major major change and uh, mm-hmm. Microsoft would be easier at making a change like that or at least making the decision to make the change the success at the the result might not be good but a hierarchical organizational culture has that advantage they can make sweeping mm-hmm. change which is built into the culture yeah and you know I think there is there's also kind of a, another type of culture I mean uh, so I think about Amazon uh, a lot because it's the most recent company that I worked at. When I was at Amazon, I thought it was interesting that the company was about as hierarchical as you can get, but innovation was encouraged at all levels. And if you had a good idea and you could navigate the bureaucracy just a little bit, you actually w- you could get your idea recognized. You could get resources behind your project, and it made me think that perhaps a flat organization is not the only way to get a creative entrepreneurial culture. There are some ways to, to percolate, um, you know, big, bigger bets, even from the lower levels of the company. Um, and I think, you know, Bezos has, has talked about this somewhere. He says, you know, we really don't want to get put in a position where we have to make a hail Mary decision. So we want to be making these bets on the side and then we can figure out how to, um, you know, uh, increase capital into one of those bets if it seems like it's working out. There's this, and there's also this culture of experimentation you see at Facebook and you see it at Google. Um, but it also may be dependent on the type of product, the type of platform that the company is building. Uh, perhaps it is not as easy to do that with a product like WordPress. Um, I don't know. Did, 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 what were your thoughts on like how to how to inject that sort of you know inter intracompany entrepreneurialism intracompany product building that could turn into something like that that is a big pillar of of pro, of of profit for a company i mean it sounds like that's what you were trying to instill at wordpress when you were writing those those letters to matt yeah uh let me let me go back for let me go back for a second you said something really interesting which i think is a really important point about your observation at amazon that even though it was very hierarchical you still saw that it was, it was you you could see the path you could you had you had enough experiences watching other people who had an idea navigate it sufficiently well enough they got resources and actually built stuff and i think that's really important that uh, part of the problem with these sweeping the way we like to categorize organizations and management styles all these methodologies i think it it often obscures the reality of it that in any of these structures there's a whole number of different attitudes that leaders can choose to follow or not that have way more to do with the successful outcome than the structure they're using. 
people forget that NASA, like the space race, 1961 to 1969, that NASA, this is probably the greatest eight years of technological innovation in one organization ever in the history of the planet. And it was a huge government-run you know, bureaucracy. It was 250,000 people managed in silence. Like all the, not, like it's so far removed from our, the notions we like to romanticize now about startup culture. They were able to, 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 to truly, I, I don't use the word lightly, but to innovate every miss, every test flight, everything they did had so much ambition and so much risk. And it was in the system that was bureaucratic defense contractors. So, what, what's the difference between that and like a, 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 the, the stereotype we have for large bureaucratic organizations? It was what you said. It was this attitude among leaders to be willing to experiment, to put resources behind ideas they found interesting, to, 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 to place the value on improvement rather than the status quo, which psychologically is very hard to do for anyone. It's harder to do for people who have a lot of power, I think. But you can do it in almost any system of management provided that's how you use your power. You use your power to give resources to people with interesting ideas. So that to me is the fundamental thing that gets overlooked is people talk about, you know, are you agile? Are you scrum? Are you, like all that stuff is, that's like the tool belt. But uh, the incrementalism. Person, or, yeah. Well, I mean, but even incrementalism can lead to um, can lead to big things. If uh, I mean, all that's uh, you made a really good point about looking past the superficial management approach that's being used, and how there's another layer of choices that's uh, cultural, perhaps. That how do the people who have the power use that relative to new ideas? If they use their power to support new ideas, then progress will happen. If they use their power to protect the status quo, then it won't. And that can be true in a startup or in a defense, 250,000 person defense contractor based uh, bureaucracy. Mm. So, so I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about remote work okay. um, because obviously this is your, your book is about remote work. I mean, it's, it's, it's a documentation of experience of remote work, but it was, it was particularly interesting because it pre- presaged uh, a lot of what has happened since then. It's so interesting that, you know, you the the company, IRC was so core to the company, and then since then, we've obviously seen the rise of Slack, and there has been a parallel rise in how much remote work is getting done. I, I don't know if you can say if it's a causal or a correlative relationship between Slack and remote work, but there's certainly some kind of linkage there between how awesome of a communication tool we have with, or, or you're talking about other, you could talk about other similar tools like HipChat or something. But, um, you know, this, the, 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 the communication that we get out of these types of tools, um, I, they're really enabling. And, you know, I think that um, people talk about, the the value of a shared office space of an in-person office space much of the value that people talk about is derived from this idea that you get this organic information flow from an in-person office and that you know this is uh, people talk about oh this is why pixar steve jobs you know had this brilliant moment where he designed pixar in this way where people would have in you know uh accidentally bump into each other and there would be this organic information flow but the the other side of that is that there is this trade-off where if you have this big shared office space that it's like maybe kind of crowded and 
people can't get deep work done, like the you know the type of work that you get done when you're like sitting alone in a room and you're just typing away for hours and you really get in the zone. Maybe harder to enter flow state if you're in this crowded office area. Do you think that's an accurate depiction? Is that a trade off that happens where? Maybe if you're if you set up a remote situation, you get a decrease in this desire, perhaps desirable organic information flow. Um, or is is that or is that a false dichotomy? Can you get that nice organic information flow out of tools that are available to remote teams? I think that it's it's a it's a it's it's a false dichotomy in a way. I think that the number one, if, if this was a real situation, you told me you're going to give me $10 million to start a company and I had to choose, do I want everyone to be in the same building or do I want everyone to be remote workers? And that's an interesting question. It's an important question. It's going to define a lot of things. But my first thought would be to resist that question instead think, how am I going to hire great people? Like, who, who, who are the great people I'm going to hire? Who's going to be my first really good hire? And once I have one person and then a second person, a culture is going to form around whatever, whatever ways of working, assuming we are effective working together, whatever ways of working we develop. Some people find remote work far easier, more comfortable than other people do. It's not for everybody. But I'd say the same thing about working in a physical space together. Some people get energy from that and it, it helps them do their job. Other people are in these spaces that are shared spaces and they spend as much time as possible on their head with their headphones on trying to tune out everybody else. I, I think it's one of these things that we want to polarize as being good or bad or being right or wrong, but so much about work and what makes one workplace good or one bad are very, sup not superficial, very uh, subjective. Some people are willing to commute two hours to go to a work, uh, go, go to a job that they find the trade-offs are worth it. Other people would never do that, and I think that I put this in the same category. To be more, to more directly answer your question, I think absolutely serendipity and and interesting collisions can occur remotely. They're they're of a different nature. They tend to be more text-oriented because a lot of these systems are based on text. You're in chat rooms together, people are typing. But the web is primarily text and people typing. And Twitter is – serendipity happens all the time when any two people are talking about something and an unexpected suggestion is made and then that leads to a path that no one could have foreseen. I think that happens anytime two interesting people are having a conversation. I think physical space has advantages just because we're physical creatures. So a good argument could be made that there's more data there, that um, if my office is next to yours, I see when you come in and when you leave, and I see where you go for lunch and where you don't. And that gives me another set of information about you as a person. And if you're a coworker, that information could become useful to me in some way, that there are things I will know about you that I might never know if uh, I only work with you remotely. So one thing about remote work, and this is true, it was true at Automatic, is it does require people to be a little bit more social. Because you have to, if you don't put it out there, it's harder for people to passively learn these things about your interests or what you do. And um, so I, I, I try very hard not to take a hard line about it. And I take exception whenever people in art, they see these articles in Fast Company magazine or uh, Bloomberg, like once a month or so about like the right way to have an office is, you know, the, it's open, open space. So remote work is terrible. Remote work is great. And the, if you read the studies, they're usually not nearly that definitive. It's just that the headlines are. Um, 
One last thing I was going to say about that, a, a key thing about remote work, and I get asked this all the time, is that one advantage Automatic had was they were 100% remote. So everyone is in the same boat, and and that allowed them to hire people knowing that everyone was going to be primarily remote. So their hiring process is based on being remote. You do a small project for them as part of the interview, and you work remotely with the rest of the company. And that's a great vetting out for both the candidate and the company is this someone who actually likes to work remotely and is it effective doing it? Are they good communicators enough? Are they good enough for communication? And they learn that before they hire people. So that's one thing they've included in their process that I think helps them become an effective culture that's centered on remote work that a lot of places forget to do. So people working in a office is one of the corporate sacred cows that we have and you know you wrote a pretty good counter argument or at least a counter example in the form of the year without pants what are the other sacred cows about corporate work that you think should be questioned more a terrible one is uh, ours we still still rely on time as a measure of people's contribution, which is just a terrible, <laughs> terrible measure. And software companies are, are, like to think they've evolved past this, but really they often don't. And that this is one common argument for remote work, is you don't really see how many hours people are, are quote unquote working. But in a workplace, everyone knows who gets there early and who stays late. And if managers aren't careful, that becomes a status symbol for who they, and, and they don't, it also becomes an opportunity for bias that the person who's staying late could, it could be just because they're staying the latest because they're the sloppiest programmer. You know, they're, they're not really that good and it requires them a lot more time to do things. Uh, that, so I think time is a terrible one. And so much of our work experience in most offices is based around time, out days off, uh, you know, when, when you come in, when you leave. I think that's a terrible one. It's very hard to change because it's built into our psychology and our culture to evaluate people that way. But um, that's probably my number one thing when I go speak at a company about this stuff. And uh, everyone nods their heads when I pick on it. Every, everyone kind of knows it logically, but then you know, rational, uh, irrationally or sort of subjectively, we do evaluate each other and who we think is working hardest based on how much time they put in. It's funny because I, when I was at Amazon, there were a couple guys that were like the best programmers on the team that I worked on, and they were often working in the office super late because that was when nobody was there, and that was when there wasn't they wouldn't be mm. distracted. And I was like, wow, if only these guys could just work remotely. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, yeah that's, uh, a good, that's a good example too of uh, you know personal preference. You know, there's some developers who don't mind. They like there's some people love to work at coffee shops. They get energized by like the white noise of it, and other people find it miserable. And um, so those two developers you're talking about. Uh, they're really not doing their best work. This environment is an, you know, a detriment in some ways. If they can mm. work from home two days a week or three days a week, enough time that they in, in, can benefit from the positive elements of a workplace. But when they know they have a project due, they can just go wherever they want and do it. I, uh, so uh, you asked me, so time, people judging by time is number one. And number, number two, the corollary to that is purely about performance. If I want to work from home... And promising you, to, I'm saying to you, my boss, my performance will stay the same, and it does. Like, and my coworkers are happy with my level of communication with them. What's the problem? Unless there's a problem, why is this choice 
verboten. It, it doesn't. Mm. There's no real. There's no real logic behind it. Mm. So let's begin to close off. Um, how does your life as an author compare to writing software? Do you miss writing software? Do you miss working in teams? Um, how does that contrast? I I definitely miss working in teams. I'm a flexible person. There's a lot of things that I enjoy, and I think I have a diverse set of aptitudes that I, I enjoy trying to use. But I've always been a team person. I, one of my the things I miss the most is also part of why I was willing to go back to automatic was I really wanted to work on a team again. And um, writing is a very solitary pursuit. I enjoy solitary pursuits as well, so I'm very happy that this is what I get to do. I feel very fortunate that I make a living writing books and giving lectures. I feel very privileged, and I love it. The challenge of it is great. But the major downside for me is the, all, all this work is mostly solitary. Every now and then I'll collaborate with someone on something, but that doesn't happen that often. And um, so personally, yeah, that's the thing I miss the most. I wouldn't be surprised if every five or six years or maybe a little bit longer – I go back to do what I did at uh, at WordPress. I think it's great for me because it lets me see how much of what I, I've been telling people to do, I actually practice myself. It's a good <laughs> self-check. I wish more business authors and creativity authors, I wish they did this because it's a fantastic test of whether they practice what they preach or not. And then it's also a chance to get new stories and to learn to learn new things. So Yeah. Um, Definitely miss teams, though. All right. Well, yeah. well, Scott, um, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and your book is awesome. And I want to thank uh, Quincy Larson, who runs Free Code Camp, which is a remote company. He writes a lot about remote work, and I actually found out about your book from one of his blog posts. So, Excellent. Um, yeah, thanks to Quincy. Thanks for your book, and everybody who enjoyed this conversation should definitely check out The Year Without Pants. All right, well, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Great to talk to you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.